Who thinks Brienne should stay up here and talk? <laughs> oh, man. Hi, guys. All right, we're at Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 20. If you could go ahead and get there. We're going to jump right in to the parable, the storyteller. Matthew 20. We are in week five of the storyteller. And this week is uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Workers in the vineyard. I want to start by jumping right into this parable, right into this story. And if you can imagine uh, the scene. Uh, I've tried to paint the picture every week of what it looks like to, uh, for Jesus when he's telling these stories. Who's in the audience? Uh, where are they at? Uh, what that first century Jewish culture is really like? What it's really about? What's the point of the parable? All, uh, all of these things. But I believe in this one, it's important for us to step back and see what happened before this parable uh, in order for us to understand what this parable is about. So look at, actually, I know you're at Matthew 20, but just look a few verses earlier. Matthew chapter 19, um, and verse uh, 17. Excuse me, verse 27, not 17. Um, we're going to start, actually, verse 26. It says, that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What are the things that are being said here? Verse 26 of chapter 19 in Matthew. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. They're talking about salvation. They're talking about eternal life. They're talking about total forgiveness. Grace. Eternal. Amazing. Incredible grace. With man, it's impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. So then it brings up this discussion. And what, enter, enter in one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible. A guy who is a lot like you and a lot like me. Uh, the guy that asks the, the curious questions. He's the guy that is one of the followers of Jesus, in fact, one of the first followers of Jesus, um, <laughs> and I love this guy because in every story, he seems to be the guy with the big mouth. He seems to be the guy that asks the obvious. He seems to be the guy that asks the questions that you know you're thinking at the same time. As you read the stories about this person, you also see that he's the first guy to jump out of the boat. He's the first kid, so to speak, that says, let me hold it, let me try it, let me see it, right? It's Peter. And Peter says something here that sets off everything that we're going to be at today. It sets off Jesus, the storyteller, telling one of the greatest parables that doesn't just build on the idea of eternal life and salvation, but it builds on where we've been the last couple of weeks, guys, with the prodigal son and how there were two lost sons. And it builds on the character and the grace of the father. Let's see where, how it builds on it. Jesus, excuse me, Peter, he says to Jesus, 
<laughs> See, Jesus? Look at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. <laughs> what will we then have? What will we have? <laughs> I love this. So Peter has the audacity to look Jesus in the face and says, Jesus, look, dude, like, I left a good job catching fish. I left a good life. We've left, got, like, you, I'll speak for you guys, all right? Peter's saying, we left everything to come follow you. What do we get? <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, it's so good. It's so, it's such an idiot comment. It's such a male comment, or question, sorry. It's such a male perspective. Like, what am I going to get out of this? Like, what do we get paid? What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the pot of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? What is the point of following you, Jesus? Because we've, we've left everything. Have you ever asked this question as a, as, as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Jesus? Have you ever asked this to God? I mean, surely not out loud, right? But have you ever asked this question in your heart? I have. You know, when, when I ask this question, shamefully I ask this question, when things are not going so well. In fact, when things just hit the fan. I said things. <laughs> when, when stuff is not going well or tragedy happens or it's just like it should be and it could be, but it's just not. God, like, I've been faithful to you. I've followed you. I've been working for you. What do I get? How silly. So Jesus, in Jesus fashion, does the most amazing thing uh, that he always seems to do. Is he, he, he drops the mic through storytelling. He essentially takes this gentle moment, and he doesn't make Peter feel... Uh, as silly as he now looks, him asking the God with skin, what do we get for following you? Um, he, he tells this parable that kind of illustrates this thing that, that, that Jesus says is, with, is impossible with man, but is, is totally possible with God. He answers this with a story. He answers Peter's question with a story, and this is the parable. This is the story. It's called The Laborers in the Vineyard. Luke, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1. Would you follow along with me? There's 16 verses here. You got to get this. This story's incredible, but hang on. It's a little bit, a little bit redundant, so it's, easy to, it's easier to follow. But I want you to get the details here, and I also want you to get the context of what we just talked about. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. This is Jesus telling this story. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound familiar to the prodigal son? Does it sound familiar to the prodigal son that squandered everything that was in the house to get what he wanted, and then he went and squandered it truly with prostitutes and wild living in a distant country, squandering his father's inheritance, then comes back with nothing to show. And then the older brother, who's always been faithful to everything that the father owns, that the master of the house owns, but ultimately has an even worse attitude of grace and love and understanding about his brother and about the whole picture 
um, than anybody. Does, like, does this sound a little bit familiar? Because, again, he's talking about the master of the house. He didn't say father, but he says the master of the house. It implies something here. That who, excuse me, the master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with these laborers for a denarius, essentially a day's wage. It's the simplest way to see it and understand it. A day's wage, he sent them out into the vineyard. Now this is again, this is early in the morning that this master went out and he found these workers, these day laborers, these farmhands. Um, harvest is happening. And if you know, especially maybe you live up towards the Westfield area, you know, um, specifically with vineyards, you know that there is, um, harvest is pretty general. But you know, and I know, it's just like with any fruit or any vegetable, but specifically grapes, that there is like this small window for harvest. Very small window when those grapes are of utmost value to produce the wine that it ultimately was made to produce, it needed to be picked, it needed to be harvested in a very small window. And so when harvest came, it was this moment of like all hands on deck. You understand? That in this moment, for that week or two or period of time, when it was ready, when it was past ripe, but it wasn't too ripe, and it was ready to go harvest, needed some extra workers. So the master of the house recognized that the time is right, and we needed some help. And so he went out to find these workers. They agreed on a day's wage, and they went to work early in the morning. And then about, uh, say, 9 o'clock, he saw other people standing in the marketplace. There were still workers, there were still farmhands uh, walking down, downtown. And he noticed that. The master of the house noticed that there's people who are just standing there. And he said to them, you, go into my vineyard also. And whatever is right, I'll give it to you. Okay, so they went and they worked for a day's wage. Verse 5. So they went going out again the sixth hour. So that's roughly like one, two, three o'clock in the middle of the day after lunch. And then it happened again on the ninth hour, like three o'clock, four o'clock. Um, he did the same thing. He went back to the marketplace. There's guys walking around. There's people walking around idle, ready to work, but they haven't been asked to work yet. And he told them, guys, go, go, go out and get to work. Go out into the vineyard and I'll pay you. I'll pay you what's fair. And then he went out about the 11th hour. The 11th hour is a metaphor. For he went out when there was just like this much of the day left. Like maybe an hour left of the day. So say all the workers got off at 6 o'clock. And they were done with that day's work. Master went out at 5 o'clock. An hour before. And he found more people. And he says go out to the vineyard too. When the evening came, as was a custom, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call all the laborers and pay them their wages. Their wages, their payment, their paycheck, right? Beginning with the last and up to the first. Beginning with the last and up to the first. Now who is the last in the story? 
It's the workers that came at the 11th hour, right? It's the workers that came last, correct? Up to the first. Verse 9. And when, he, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those who had hired were hired first, the guys that came at 6 o'clock in the morning, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. Like, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Hold up. And on receiving, if, when they gr- on receiving, if they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. This is not fair, right? And you have been, excuse me, you have made them equal, equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with my denarius for your wages? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you not begrudge my generosity? Fine. The last will be first and the first will be last. You've heard this phrase. The last will be first and the first will be last. And you may have heard it um, as I heard it almost daily when you cut in line in grade school for the drinking fountain. It sounds familiar, right? It's this idea of those that are in the last now are going to be first and those that are first will be last. Jesus is answering a question with a story. I want to talk to you today about this parable. And I want you to simply first understand that even though there's a lot we could say in this story about equal pay, no matter who you are, where you're from, how hard you work, we we could get political really quick, right? I'm going to just say that there's a lot to be said about that that reveals the nature and the character of leadership and management. There's a lot there. But I also need to say that that is not at all what this story is about. Jesus answers this story because of a question about eternal life. This is about salvation. This is about grace. And so what I want to invite you to do, it says the word denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. So obviously everybody in this room maybe have, has a different day's wage. But ultimately I want you to again take that part out. I want you to take out this idea of money. Because we all, y'all just went on a rabbit trail in your mind. You just start thinking about your paycheck, right? And then you're like, oh shoot, Monday I got to go back to work. And then like, you're my, like I get it, I get it. What Jesus wants to point out this morning, he wants to to first pluck out this idea of that it's not about money. I want you to insert in in, in this phrase, in this idea, in this story, I want you to insert the word grace instead of denarius. Grace. Because that's what this story is about. This story is not about fair pay, equal pay. The story is about equal grace, about fair grace. The master is God, and Jesus clearly points it out that grace is the ultimate 
equal pay. No matter how long you've worked, no matter how hard you've worked, for it is by grace that you are saved. Right? It's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. It's not of works. It's so that we don't boast. It's this idea that grace comes to us unmerited, undeserved. Grace is what the master gives us. Grace is what enables us to get what we need. Now back to the story for a moment. And if we were talking about denarius, if we were, if we did have this basic understanding of what Jesus was trying to tell us through the story, and even that day, they understood that in that moment, a denarius was essentially a day's wage. It was enough to provide for the family of those workers what they needed for shelter, for food, and for the basic needs to do life. And so this reveals something about the master. The master, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it wasn't about the harvest necessarily. It wasn't about his farm and what he could get out of his workers. It was about helping his workers and providing needs for his workers, whether they were there all day or whether they were there for an hour. This idea of the 11th hour worker is in comparison to us. Jesus is talking, essentially, he's talking to the Jews. The Jews, they metaphorically, they had been there since 6 in the morning. They'd, they'd known God's idea, plan, love, and grace all along. But the 11th hour people, those are the Jesus followers. Those were the disciples. That's you and I. Do you see the, the, the metaphor here? Do you see what Jesus is simply pointing out in this parable? And I'm, I'm just telling you right out front what it means right from the get-go because there's so much to unpack here besides just a story about equal pay. In fact, Jesus uses this parable. <laughs> Jesus uses equal pay to undeserving workers as a conduit to define grace. Jesus uses equal pay to undeserving workers as a conduit to define grace. And that it's enough. That his grace is enough. Just like a denarius would have been for all those workers, whether they were for an hour or the whole day. That day's wage would have provided for this guy and this guy and this gal and this gal. Would have provided for each one of them enough to feed their families and put a roof over their head. And do what they needed to do in order to take care of their family. That was the heart of the master. And in the same way, listen, listen, listen. And in the same way, whether you've received grace for all of your life, for the grace of God, of salvation of Jesus and following him as your master, or whether you started last week, his grace is sufficient for you and his grace is sufficient for them. His grace is enough. Just like the money was enough to provide for that family, his grace is enough for us all. It has nothing to do with how long you've had the grace. The grace is just as heavy for you who are new and for those that have been around. Grace is that powerful. Jesus talks about 
his grace and his mercy and his love and forgiveness. And sometimes we look at this 11th hour, this idea of these new Christians as like they're these, these followers of Jesus. They're the 11th hour Christians. They're the 11th hour people that came. And like we were here for this period of time. We've, only been, we've not earned the day. The whole idea is not that, oh, you're an 11th hour Christian or your 11th hour worker and you know what you've kind of you kind of came in at the third hour no 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 here's the metaphor all y'all all me we are all 11th hour workers those 11th hour workers they didn't deserve a whole day's wage at base level like when you first read the story like wait a minute this isn't right that is not wait a minute and some of y'all are like c equal pay huh like somebody already like picket and protest, right? Jesus uses equal pay to undeserving workers as a conduit to define grace and that grace is enough. Jesus doesn't start talking about it when he shows up on the earth. In fact, uh, specifically, if you rewind a little bit before Matthew, you like dip into the Old Testament. One of the last books of the Old Testament, Zephaniah. How many of you guys have been studying Zephaniah this week? That's what I thought. Zephaniah is where it's at, though. There's a lot happening. Zephaniah is this exciting, exciting book where it's talking about that the Messiah is coming. And hang on, he's coming. We've been waiting a long time, thousands and thousands of years, for the Messiah to come to redeem us all from our sins. Specifically, um, as the Old Testament is a story of the Jews, it's a story of them finding the promised land, and that someday a Redeemer would come, a Messiah would come to redeem them forever. This idea of Zephaniah talks about how, <laughs> I love this, because it's not talking about a Messiah coming. It's talking essentially about this prophetic idea of once the Messiah comes and once the Messiah does what he's going to do forever and ever and ever, there's this idea of God celebrating us. This idea of God singing over us. This God giving us grace. And he's, he's delighting in us. And that's the best way to understand grace. It's the idea of God delighting in you. God just didn't just make you. He didn't just design you. He's not just providing a way for you to prosper and experience his love. He's delighting in you through his grace. He's singing over you, it says. In chapter 3 of Zephaniah, it talks about how God sings over us. And he quiets us. In verse 16, it says that he quiets us with his love. But then, after he quiets us with his love, it says that he exults over us with loud singing. Can you imagine that? Like, hold on a second. Like, why would God sing over me? What has he got to sing about? What's so great about me? And that's the picture of what it's like to delight in us. That's grace. Now, I'm going to try an experiment this morning. Um, and uh, I want you to, I want everybody in this room to, to just like step out of your comfort zone for a moment. And the good news is you don't have to get up out of your seat, um, except for one person. Um, and I'm going to actually ask one of my favorite people 
and I think one of your favorite people, Carol Majak. I'm going to ask her to come up. Let's give it up for Carol Majak. I'm going to ask Carol to come up, and I would like to have Carol sit with me for a moment. She has no idea what's happening. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to actually have you, you're in the exalted seat here. Yep, there you go. Do you, do you, here, no, you, you just, there you go. All right, give it up again for Carol. Woo! Now, now. You don't have to talk, Carol, but, okay, let, let us do the talking, all right? Um, I have no idea how this is going to go, but um, Carol is, on a serious note, one of the most incredible people I know. She serves our Conduit kids every week for mm, years. Um, she's done an incredible job, not just loving on our kids, but then she comes out here and she loves on all y'all. Amen? Um, if you are new to Conduit, maybe you don't know Carol, but you will know her very soon. She's got a way of just getting all busy in everybody's life to help them, to encourage them, to love them, to lift them up. Um, and I thought it would be cool um, for us to just take a moment and to talk about Carol. So, so this is what I want to do. I would like y'all to tell me just a few things. Your favorite, whoa, my clip totally fell off. A few things about Carol that are your favorite. What are your favorite things about Carol? Okay, Rose, first, first hand to go up. Woo! Jenny? Oh, good. Okay, Vinny, I guess you can, uh, I guess you can have a word. <laughs> I, say it again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ellen. <laughs> I 
so good. <laughs> wow. Polly. <laughs> cool. One more, Brad, her brother. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, one more. Say that last part again. Soak it up, soak it up. Because next, next I'm going to ask them what is their least favorite. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, give it up for Carol. We love you so much. Yeah, hold on, hold on, let's say it.
know I'm preaching, and um, I keep preaching now. I've taught different grades, but I am preaching now so that I could like go through the whole family. That's that was such a blessing. And, but um, some days I stop dead in my tracks and just like say, Lord, this love that I feel isn't from anyone but you, and thank you for giving me your gift, because it makes life so enjoyable. Mm -hmm. So he brings it right through to you, to all of us. He doesn't hold back. He's not going to mm -hmm. hold it back. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I am blessed. Awesome. And I love you. <laughs> love you, too. Oh, that went so much better than I thought. That's awesome. You never know, but obviously we could probably talk about Carol for a long, long time. As we could talk about, in the same manner, all of you. Grace is showed by simply delighting in someone. You just... You maybe not have would have, wouldn't have worded it this way, but you just showed Carol grace. You just delighted in her. And as I just said in Zephaniah, this idea of when it says God quiets us with his love, and then he exalts over us with loud singing. That's what it looks like to delight with grace. I want to point out something that was incredibly genuine, unplanned, and, and awesome. And we genuinely do love Carol. I didn't, I didn't plant any of y'all. But what I thought might happen, happened. Carol was, if I could just pick on you for a second, Carol, um, or pick on you, pick on you even more. Um, what, what Carol did was what every single one of us probably would have done. When she sat, she was totally in to what everyone was saying. But then there came this point where it, got a, it almost got a little bit like, whoa, people really do love it. And like, kind of like everybody's starting to talk. You know what she started to do? She looked down. And that's okay. Every single one of y'all would have done the same thing. And this is essentially what we do at times when we receive grace. We look away. Now, ultimately, a lot of that's a social interaction of, of just the idea of every single one of us would have done. I'm not calling Carol or picking out. And there's nothing bad about that. It's just in our human nature, we don't know what to do with grace. We don't know what to do. With genuine, real grace and how someone is delighting in us. I see this in my kids. When you really praise them, not just good game, but or, hey, good job with that. I mean, like, really get down in their face. They start to look away. And this story is interesting because it, it like, pulls out this idea of grace. And it's the ultimate payment that everybody got at the end of the day whether they were there the whole day or part of the day. 
But I love, oh man, you're going to love me for bringing this up. Did you know that ultimately, I'm just in my imagination, that there is, <laughs> in the prodigal son story, there's act one and there's act two. But have you ever thought about act three? Act three, uh, maybe it been a little bit like this. What happened to the prodigal son once they put the robe on him and the shoes on his feet and the ring on his finger and they killed the fattened calf and they threw up the tent and they started to dance and they started to celebrate and they started to recognize the fact that he was dead and now he's alive. No one, I think we forget about the actual son. Where did he go from that point? And here's what I'm trying to, here's the point I want to draw it back to. He received grace, and his father delighted in him. But I have a feeling if that, if that was an actual story, you know what I feel like the prodigal son would have actually done with his robe and ring and shoes and hearing the band in the background? I think he probably would have said, thanks, Dad. Do you, do you mind if I just shower and call it a night? Think about that. What party gets thrown for you even if you completely squandered it all? Who wants to go to, who wants to, go to a party thrown for themselves when you've completely messed it up? You see, our natural response to grace is shame. Shame is the most powerful emotion on this planet. Shame is the most powerful emotion on this planet. If you think about it, you know, the root of anger, the root of abuse, the root of wrongdoing, or maybe the root sometimes of even being abused, the root of wrongdoing, the root of that isn't just some, like you pull layer after layer and there may be an experience there that's been done to you, done to someone. Or maybe just sin that you've just stiff-armed God over and over. He's like, I'm never going to do that again, God. And then you do it again. I will never do that again. And then we do it again. God, I will never, ever do that again. And we do it again. Below all that, way down below that, at the bedrock of it all, is shame. It's shame. Shame is the most powerful emotion on the planet. Billy, can I borrow you for a second? This one's really quick and simple. And I'm just going to have you stand right here. Just as a picture of shame. If Billy is... (laughs) That's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. We won't take the time. This is a different example. But you could say the same things about Billy because he's 
incredible and great as well. But I'm going to have you actually turn around. Imagine Billy is in, essentially, Billy is in a hole. Shame is essentially my foot on his chest, keeping him there. Shame isn't loud. Shame doesn't have sparks and fire and flame. It's this numbing pressure to keep you where you know you deserve to be. Shame has that power. It's the most powerful emotion on this planet. Now let me, let me sidestep for a second. Billy, if you don't mind, just stay in there for a moment. Um, if Billy's in a hole, and Billy's got to get out of the hole and up here, shame is this feeling of the foot on, the pressure on the chest keeping us where we're at. But there's a word I want to teach you today, just as a side note. The word is contrition. Contrition. Contrition is is this, this defined by this feeling of remorsefulness. It's similar to conviction. But I'm going to stick with today's word is contrition. Contrition actually feels almost exactly the same as shame. It feels the same. Like, I'm in a hole. Contrition is defined like this. Yep, I'm in a hole, and I don't like it. Shame is defined like this at times. Yep, I'm in a hole. And I don't like it. It feels the same. Shame and contrition feel the same. But they're so different. They're so different. If shame is the foot on the chest that's holding him in the hole, contrition and conviction is this. Put your foot there. Contrition is this. I bring him out of the hole. Right? Thank you. It's, it's a simple, I'm sorry, if this, I'm, a, I'm a simple guy. I'm a basic guy. And I want you to know, at, I, I'm in the same boat. We find ourselves in the hole because of what we've done or what they've done or what has been done to us or what's been said about us or what's been said to us. We get in the hole. And contrition, if it's, if it's something we've done, if it's a sin that we've committed, we've violated God's laws, we've, we've, we've stiff-armed God, and we find ourselves in a hole, it may feel like shame, but that shame is coming from the devil. The Holy Spirit actually does and works through contrition. You see, the Holy Spirit always gives you a way to do it different. Contrition gives you this invitation that there's a better way and you don't have to feel that way. There's a difference between shame and contrition. And just a side note, if you're here today and you feel shame and you feel contrition and you're not sure which one is which, you need to know that there's no sin that Jesus cannot forgive. There's no hole. There's no hole. Try me. There is no hole that the hand of contrition through the power of the Holy Spirit isn't reaching to you to pull you out. Awesome. I think it's important that we know the difference between the two. Because back to the story, 
I know what shame feels like. And shame puts, personally, it puts me in a place of feeling like it's okay to be in a hole. I don't, I mean, I just, I've only been here an hour. I, I don't deserve, I don't deserve to get out of the hole. And frankly, I personally, I, I look at my life and I see favor and blessing all over. My family, my church, my friends, my life, my health, my upbringing, my salvation. Blessing all over. But what the devil wants to do is remind me that I don't deserve it. And you know what? He's right. But there's more to the story. What I have to remind myself in regards to shame is that if there are areas of wrongdoing, if there are areas of sin, if there's a better way to do this, there's a better way out of the hole, the Holy Spirit is helping me. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's this idea that even when we do mess up, he makes a better way, a different way for us. A way of hope and freedom and forgiveness. And he gives us grace in that. If we only knew the reality that there's no, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've given your heart and you've given your life to him, there's no such thing as the whole. There's no such thing as the whole. You've been forgiven. Live like it. You've been redeemed. Live like it. God delights over you in his grace and his mercy. Live like it. And that is the reality that sometimes I need to remind myself of the gospel because I don't feel it. Blessing all around. Well, it makes me feel more guilty. So act three of the prodigal son, he goes in, Dad talks to me like, bro, you can, no, like, you can shower later. Just like, at least come get, at least come get uh, a bite of steak and hear the band. It's about to kick up. Crazy, bro, because, son, you were, you were dead, but now you're alive. You gotta stay just for a little bit, bud. I know you're dirty. I know, dude, bro, you stink. But that robe helps. And just stay for a little bit. And he lifts his head up. He's not looking at the ground anymore. He's received the grace from the Father. And then the other part of Act, or the other part of scene three is that the father disappeared for a while and the, the prodigal son didn't know where he went. Here he comes walking in with his older brother. And the older brother walks up to the band, says, guys, stop. And the older brother stands on the stage and he looks back at the prodigal son wearing the robe and the dirt all over his face and smells like pig dung. chewing on his steak. This party really died, and the older brother draws the attention to his brother and reminds him that he doesn't deserve this party. That's the second aspect of our shame. Have you ever been reminded of your shame? Like, all right, I got through. I came to church. I learned the truth. God's so gracious. He forgave me of that thing. Oh, I'm clean, oh, I'm forgiven, I celebrate in Jesus' name. And then they remind you of the whole. People. What are these lovely people, right? 
Even people that don't intend to. And a lot of times, if we're honest, you're those people. I'm those people. And then a lot of times we have also have to understand that the hole we're calling out in other people's lives is simply because we're in that hole. And it makes us feel sociopathically better by calling out the hole they're in. When the master <laughs> is giving you grace, and he's giving you grace, and he's giving you grace, and he's giving you denarius, and he's giving you denarius, and he's giving you denarius. Are you with me? Do you understand this? Do you grasp the weight and the power of grace? Shame is the most powerful emotion on the planet. But grace is out of this world. Grace doesn't even come from this place. Grace came from above. Came from another place. To this planet. To this place. To the most powerful emotion on the planet is shame. Grace came to drive out shame. What drives out shame? Grace. Grace. Two things and I want to be done. Two things that drive out grace are the grace of God and the grace of gospel community. Two things that drive out shame is the grace of God and the grace of gospel community. Here's the best part. The point, really, what probably the discussion that went on and on and on and on about the story, about how at the end of the day the master gave him enough grace and him enough grace and him enough grace. This whole reality of grace that was evened out through equal pay to undeserving workers, Jesus used as a conduit to define grace and that it was enough. Paul says in the New Testament that his grace is sufficient. His grace is enough for you and for me. And that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. So his strength is made perfect in my weakness as he lifts my head, as I'm filled with shame, as I don't feel like I deserve it. Guess what? You don't deserve it. Enter Jesus. And Jesus made you receive it. For by grace you are saved. It's not of yourself. In this beautiful picture of that grace is enough and that grace is sufficient, the grace of God is ultimately what this is about. First of all, the grace of God. When you work for the master, it's not about the denarius. It's about the harvest. When they showed up, and that's what the master was trying to point out, that it was about the harvest. When you go to work for the master, it's about the master's work. When you receive the grace of God, you, listen, 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 you don't receive just grace, you receive God who is grace. You don't just go back to the prodigal son story. You don't just get his stuff. You get him. And that's what Jesus is lovingly saying to Peter. Peter, what do you get by following me? You get me. You get me and everything that I am. Actually, metaphorically, literally in you, living in you, filling you, giving you power. But everything that I am is yours. Everything that I am, you are. And so when you guys, check it out. When you begin to transform your life by the grace of God, you change. 
When you start showing grace in gospel community, they change through the grace of God and the grace of gospel community. Everything changes with that. You don't just get the Father's stuff. You get everything that the Father is. So conduit, that's why you don't hear um, a whole lot about specific things you should do or specific things you should not do. Specific things you should vote for and specific aisles that you should sit on particular sides. Let's elevate Jesus and all will come to him. Let's elevate the idea of grace to us and grace to others. The idea of salvation through grace alone and our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross. It's given us freedom. How do we practically drive out shame in our life? It's by the grace of God. But secondly, it's the grace of gospel community. You guys, we've encouraged you over and over and over to be a part of an open house. And that's not just some gimmick because we want, we get commission or something. Um, we believe that it's ultimately important, ultimately essential in driving out the shame and reminding ourselves of the gospel of Jesus and his delight and grace over our lives. It's through gospel community. There's others that need it from you, what God has given to them, and there's others that want to give it to you. The grace of gospel community. Would you just stand with me as we close? Today, I, I understand that there are people that, um, from one end of the spectrum to the other, maybe you're here today and you have never received Jesus as your Savior. You've never been truly born again. Today is your day. Maybe this is for one of you. Maybe today is the day where you receive the grace of God. And we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you through that. Um, and I want to encourage you to come up and pray during this last song. Or stay after, we'll be here. But at the same time, there might be some people here that if you're like me, where you're really questioning this whole real grace thing. Yeah, I get it, Corey. I get the parable. I understand all your, your analogies, but I just... You're looking up to the heavens, and you're... If you're honest, you're saying, like, I got it, God, I get it, I understand it, but like, where, where are you? Well, I don't feel it, I don't see it. I want to remind you today, I want, I want, in fact, this last song, I want you to just, you don't even need to sing if this is you. I just want you to listen. Because you're saying, God, where are you? And he's saying loud and clear. I love you. Not in some cheesy way. He receives you. Because of his grace, you're enough. Because of his grace, you're enough. His grace is enough on you, through you. Not just to receive it, but to live it. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Father, thank you for your grace.
through your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask for your grace on this moment. May your grace be gentle, but may your grace crush us and bring us, bring new life out of us. In Jesus' name.